Flourishing Education, the podcast where I share the powerful, imperfectly perfect conversations with disruptors of the education system in the UK and beyond. I would really like to encourage you to take a listen and see what's possible as I ask the question, how can we change the way we educate and parent our children and young people so that they can truly become flourishing, curious, lifelong learners and young adults. I hope you enjoy these episodes as much as I've enjoyed recording them and creating them. Please do not hesitate to connect with me on LinkedIn, Fabian Vales, and or, and or on Twitter at FlourishingHG. And please let me know what's your favourite episode or favourite part of the podcast. I look forward to hearing from you and in the meantime I truly hope you are thriving and flourishing. Wishing you a fabulous day wherever you are in the world. Hello and welcome to another Imperfectly Perfect Conversation for the Flourishing Education podcast. Today I'm delighted to bring you part two of a conversation with a guest, uh, Josh Ferris. A very warm welcome back to the podcast, Josh. It's good to be back, although the time of the day is still trying to wake up, so forgive me if I swear my words. It's all good. It's all imperfectly perfect, Josh. So all good. If you need to stop, pause, restart, it's all welcome. Um, so um, before we press record, I was just saying that um, I am going to release our, your conversations one after the other. So for the listeners, if you've not heard the first part of uh, the, the first Imperfectly Perfect conversation with Josh, then you might want to go and check that out. And that would be the episode just before this one. Um, but if the, our listeners don't really fancy going back to that just yet and want to listen to this conversation. Perhaps we could start in the way that I, we always normally start, Josh. So would you um, tell me, us, muy as Siegel says, um, where you are in the world, um, a little bit more about you and your journey thus far? Yeah, so I think there's been a lot of uh, change since we last spoke. So I'm here in the United States in, in Virginia, and I work for an organization currently called Project Hope, which they're the state-level organization that administers a federal law called McKinney-Vento, and that is to support youth that are experiencing homelessness in the state. And uh, the law dictates that every school district in the country has a liaison appointed to support these youth and families so that they can ensure that they're still attending school and have some of the needs that they need met. Uh, what my work is, is a new work that I had proposed to being a youth collaboration coordinator. So my, I have a couple of things going on in the works, but my primary role is building a statewide youth advisory board of youth that are have experienced homelessness that are uh, 18 to 24 and we'll sit and help provide input and programming and policy at the state level to how we can um, do better programming. But in terms of, of life updates, I, I, I'm i gonna tell you what, I love my coworkers because 
they've been nothing but supportive. I'll, I'll give you just an example. Um, so I had applied and was accepted to Georgetown and the University of Pennsylvania a few months ago. But uh, after I was accepted, no one told me in the application process, in the website or in the um, webinars that there was a deposit of, well, for one, it was 500 and what for UPenn, which I accepted was $1,000 that before you could matriculate. And at the time my brother was in a car accident and I didn't have a regular income coming in. So I said, you know, just giving you a thousand dollars just to say that I'm coming wasn't feasible and they did not care. They said, okay, we'll give you a little bit of time. And after, through that time, they never reached out to ask me how I was doing or how my brother was doing. They just reached out to, um, they texted me and saying, hey, remind you, here's pay your deposit, pay your deposit, pay your deposit. And so eventually I just I, I started doing some more work, background work that I probably should have done on the program. And after talking to a bunch of alumni and looking at their outcomes of the their salary outcomes of people from this program, I just realized it wasn't worth it. And it wasn't what I thought it, it was I, that I wanted in any ways. So I was at our state conference telling my coworkers about this. And a few weeks later, one of my coworkers, her name's Martha, she reached out to me and she said, hey, I, I forgive me if I overstepped. But uh, so our, just as background, our organization were hosted at a college, uh, the University of William & Mary, which is the second oldest college in the United States after Harvard. And so she said, I went and talked to one of the deans at William & Mary and told them about your situation. And they would welcome an application from you if you would be interested, even though it was July, and they stopped taking applications in February. So I applied, I got in, uh, they waived the deposit, They um, I might even get a dual degree. Um, there, I, I'll do a GA, which should cover my tuition and fees, and then keep doing some of this work, which should cover some of my living expenses. Uh, it's not set in stone yet, I'm still looking for housing, but it that was just within the past two weeks. <laughs> Amazing, Josh. Wow. Yeah, oh, it was fast. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. And so, obviously, I want to talk about your new job, the new role. I want to talk about, obviously, the, the problem of young homeless people. Just yesterday, um, my eldest and I and, and my best friend and her daughter went to in the centre of Bristol where we lived for that because there's the Harbour Festival. Um, and, and Tom and I had this conversation about uh, quite a lot of young people who was just there begging. And there were young people, obviously, clearly, you know, saying they're homeless and everything else. And I said to, to Thomas, like one of them probably was 18, 20 and it like it every time as a mum, it just like really breaks my heart um to see so many young people in this situation. So um I mean 2023, we have people who are homeless. And like really like I just it's I just don't quite I can't quite grasp that that's okay um so I'd love you to to share from your experience you know because I know obviously in the first podcast you talk about your own 
personal experience and lived experience of challenges and things like this. So um, how, how, how do we get to a stage like this, right? When there's people who have so much wealth in our countries and then young people who have absolutely nothing and find themselves in the streets. You know, and yesterday it was raining on and off. There was loads of showers. Um, so also that means you're just faced with, with literally the the hot, the cold, the rain, the you know, the wet, the everything in between. Yeah. Well, I think we all agree that housing, food are our basic needs, but a lot of societies haven't appropriated for those basic needs or afforded them as a, a basic human right and guaranteed that as a, a sign that we should live with some sort of basic security. And so there's, in regards to poverty, I mean, there are so many systemic ish reasons for poverty, but a, people, a lot of people historically have attributed poverty to being lazy. Um, or that they blame the individual person or family on their circumstances without acknowledging the various barriers that are faced if you don't come from a background of security and wealth. And it can happen. I think there's a difference between temporary poverty and, and chronic poverty. I think a lot more people experience temporary poverty and, and at least in the US there are support measures to address those that have temporary experience, like uh, someone that experiences a job loss and they're working on the market and their income um, puts them into poverty. So certain types of social programs or natural disasters that people face, people with homes on fires or hurricanes or tornadoes that render them homeless. And there's aid for that, whether it be in the private or the public sector. But in terms of people that grew up in poverty, uh, while there are there are programs to manage them that's really just to support with the symptoms, right? So you have here in the US, you have food support, whether it be through food pantries or through the government SNAP programs, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program is what they call it, um, where you can purchase food from the government in, in the store, or you have certain types of housing supports, but uh, there are two challenges one in this country is that they're just it ties to education and education attainment is a tied to your your wage labor your value of your input into society so if you can't afford to get a post-secondary degree which would especially in certain types of fields like stem that would drive you to more of a living wage um that affording you that security then it's it's hard because there just aren't enough jobs that pay someone enough to support a family. And two, there aren't, there just isn't enough housing in a lot of communities. Um, so we have to really get innovative in, in how we approach this because throwing a bunch of people in a, a, a shelter, you know, that might be better than sleeping on the street, but that's really only a, a temporary fix. How do we get affordable housing how do we get them with access to supportable wages? Um, and historically, you think about before the 1980s, when we started to have globalization and a lot of manufacturing and other blue collar jobs were, were shipped overseas, 
you didn't necessarily need to pursue post-secondary education to have to make a living you could i mean not the jobs weren't the 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 best in terms of quality or, or benefits or support maybe but they at least provided you to support your family so education ties a lot into the to poverty measures these days and it's not just in the u.s a lot of countries have done this in the western uh, community yes and and that, you know, there's, there's two things that popped up for me in terms of what you were saying. So, like the the money and the 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 inherent value that we've given to earning more money, right? Like it's not just how we've indexed the money, right, and how you're getting paid. Is that there there there's a moral value attached to that. To, to the money you earn, right? And I was listening to a, a podcast um, talking about um, the, the the politics in, in the US this weekend linked to the economy and linked to um, how Republican and Democrat the Democrats are actually talking about similar things. Um, and going back to, to, you know, talking about the wealth um, the differences into in 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 terms of wealth and how we 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 challenge that so like that's what the podcast was all about um and in that podcast they were talking about in america in particular but i think this is also true for us in in the uk you know there's this notion that if you don't work then it's like almost your fault and it's the individual that's lazy and in america there's this notion that anybody can make make um a living or like be successful right if you i don't know what the expression is but you know i mean yeah like you arrive in 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 america and you'll be a self-made man and you'll be doing okay so how, how do you feel this contributes to to the the perception and the issues that you just described earlier on yeah well i think uh, us as a country we have this value of of social mobility but there that's just a, i think a perception that i don't think the research would support that if you look at the gini index that shows the amount of inequality in each country you could see that the u.s ranks pretty high up there and has risen in in the last few decades as we've had this uh, segregation based on on class and especially race and um there are when you think about those factors i mean a lot of it attributes as far back as like the great depression um that's when we had a lot of government involvement in social programs and the social welfare of the public in the u.s and you had the stock market crash and various other factors that led to the great depression and you had what it was like a a fourth of americans were out of work and you see these long bread lines of people wanting food and when it when it becomes that normal then you start to realize like oh it's not a me fault it's a an economy fault it's a systemic issue right and systemic problems require systemic solutions not changing one individual or training one individual as we've have done um and i think the perception is problematic because even today there are so many 
immigrants that are coming to this country who they, they see American as the land of opportunity. Like the, for a great example, they'll come in through one of our borders and uh, Texas and a couple other states have these new measures where they will bus immigrants from their state to New York um, as a kind of punitive measure on those states for uh, supporting policies that in those states. So you have um, a large influx of immigrants coming to New York City that they can't house all of these people. Um, and so they're like turning hotels into shelters. And these people are coming thinking that they'll be able to make a living and, and uh, you have a better life in their in their country. And in some ways, it might be better if they're leaving violence or government persecution, uh, perhaps. But it's not as uh, those that are self-made, it's not as, as common as you would think or you hear in the media. Um, the reason I bring up the, the interventions in the from the Great Depression is because a lot of them are still in place today. And we see this again when COVID hit, that a lot of people ended up in the same situation. They start realizing when you have all these people out of work or uh, that can't go to school, that we still have these systemic issues and you can't blame it on the individual when so many people are now requesting government support again. And so it, it's when it's it's a majority thing that it becomes a conversation about changing policy rather than changing the individual. And what you pointed out too is that systemic, right? Because it's it's systemic and it's multifaceted. So it is the education. It is also, you know, the link with like health and in particular in the US, the lack of access to healthcare, for example, right? When you have not a, a lot of income um and then there's also like housing and there's you know jobs and so it's all of it like it's not just one thing which leads me to to you know a lot of the conversations I have just simply about education as a system right the fact that we have a very linear uh you know problem solution causal effect and we don't really think in in terms of what you described systemically right yeah and i think there's also history of that when it revolves youth because a lot of people think that young people don't have a a stake in this or that they can't do something because they're so young but let's point out for instance one example within my current research for my project is uh camilla tioli i don't know if i'm pronouncing her name right but she was an italian immigrant in the US and she was 14 when she was recruited to work in a factory in Massachusetts. Um, her Actually, she had a guy that came up to her father and said that he could, if she, if he paid this guy that he could get papers to show that his, the daughter was 16 and eligible to work when she was 14. So she could go in the factory because they made so little. So she got the papers approved and at 14, she went to work in a, like a, a cotton mill in Massachusetts and she uh, within th like three weeks she uh, her hair got caught into the cotton mill spinner and it descalped her and so she was in the hospital for seven months now while the the company her her employer paid for her hospital bills they didn't pay her any sick pay or any any leave pay for the amount of money that she was contributing to her family and right around that time there was a, a strike it was like i think it's called the bread and roses strike and it was a it was a labor strike 
of people in Massachusetts who attested to the disgusting conditions they were working in for such little money, such little pay, and no benefits. And um, anyways, she, at the age of 14, she went and testified in front of Congress. And it was her testimony in front of both, of, both Congress and in front of First Lady Taft that uh, ended up in a new law in Massachusetts that increased minimum wage and allowed 55,000 workers to earn a living that allowed them to thrive. Um, but she herself did not gain any credit. Uh, she, in fact, when she returned, she went to working in one of the mills and because she was involved in the strike and it was, it was public, she never was promoted and she didn't get recognized until she died. But she changed a lot of labor policy at the age of 14 with her very um, tact uh, testimony. Wow. And so, yeah, like so powerful, right? How the impact that people like that, but also very sad because, like you say, she, she, she gave a lot and did not receive much in, in return. Mm-hmm. And that's been my similar reaction when I've been studying young people that have changed the world or changed their societies and people, they don't get recognized for a very long time or until after they die uh, that I, I think we should be paying more attention to because we we have created a system, at least in, within a society and education, that that they're passive learners and we just want to fill them when we don't recognize that they already have the ability to make change, but we don't enable the conditions to allow them to show that. And do you think therefore that it is a, what needs to, to be happening is a shift in terms of mindsets as in, you know, how we adults view our children and young people? Yeah. And I think, we have to shift our mindsets on this this notion of what poverty looks like and and the role that re, like factors such as race and gender might play into it. And uh, then we also have to shift our mindset on on young people in general. Like I read a really good quote from a report last week, which I can't quote the exact uh, wording of it, but it was basically like if you want to, if there's a committee on talking about women's issues, you don't see a bunch of men showing up to talk about it. You, if it's on, on gay issues that you don't expect it to be a conversation amongst straight people, then the only one that's, that's ever been sanctified or, or acknowledged that's or normalized is young people. And that, that adults talk about young people and what, and if, in these conversations about how they should be operating in society without including them at the table it's the only one where that's a normal process and to be to be fully transparent and authentic because that's the journey I'm on from now on I have to admit that two or three years ago until I started the podcast and started having conversation I probably would, was one of those adults who thought I knew better than young people and children and I'm really ashamed to admit that and I'm also you know it makes me really sad I remember I had a conversation with um Natalie Rothwell Warren who's a researcher and is a friend now and we're co-writing a book together although she's writing her thesis right now so we've paused but you know she is the one who introduced me to the UNCRC and in particular article 12 
Um, and until then, I'd not heard about that. And I was like, I was so angry when I found out because I was like, why, why, why is that not something that I was made aware of as a, when I became a mum? And to be fair, I grew up in a in a in a world where you know children were seen but not heard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, maybe less so than even my parents and their generation. But that's you know, like things are obviously improving with every generation. Um, so I want that caveat. I want to preface that with the you know. Um, but it makes me now. I'm even more like, well, let's give children and young people a voice, right? And just like really, really hear them and not tokenistic either. So, what are your thoughts on that? I think, I think that's something that's a very international uh, experience, right? I think a lot of countries and cultures have that notion of that within our, especially within regards to our education systems. And I think that's where reflects our values is that we, when do we ask them what they bring into the classroom? Um, It's you go to the classroom and you absorb what you can from all these teachers for these number of years, and then you're ready to participate in society when a lot of them are, are already ready to participate and have been participating silently on the sidelines. Um, They're just not really acknowledged. I think we see youth as, as boisterous as 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 loud and and obnoxious and those they those can be experiences young people i think what they beat older people out on is that they have way more energy um and i i remember in college reading this paper it was a metaphor for for youth and, and working with youth is that they, they, they have so much energy they're just like like flowing water and i think it's our job is to as adults with that have more experience in life to help carve out a path for the these young people for their energy to flow to give them a help them give them a sense of direction to where to put their energy and um i'll give you another example of a a young person who changed the world from the sidelines um have you ever heard of adolfo kaminsky name rings a bell he was called the Great Forger, and he was famous from World War II. Um, he was a, uh, his parents, they had different uh, backgrounds in terms of where their countries they were from, but a lot of the, where they lived was in in, in France, and during World War II, they they were Jewish and, and got, they, they almost got sent to a, an internment camp that they were, that where they would have been killed, but there was a a miraculous intervention from from the Argentinian government because they had citizenship there. One of his parents was Argentinian, I believe, and um, so they were allowed to leave. And he had found employment as an apprentice for a clothes dyer, which allowed him certain types of skills and changing the colors of um, clothing and removing stains from garments. He also had exposure to a pharmacist, and so he uh, used these abilities during the French Resistance in the World War II where he forged papers using his knowledge um, to help uh, Jewish immigrants or Jewish people in general, most of them children, who were requesting these documents so that they could leave the country before being exterminated or sent to these, these camps where they would be killed. And so at the age of 18, at the age of 18, he forged... 30,000 something documents, you know, he would sleep, he would do these until he passed out. Um, and because of his his work, 
he saved 14,000 people and he never asked for even uh, for compensation. Um, and so that was another example of, of a young person in history who, when they're given a passion or purpose with something that affects them, they and they given a little bit of training, like he had that exposure of working with a, an enclosed dyer and a little bit of a pharmacist. He applied those skills to be a um, to be a forger. So I, I mean, I think young people can do a lot if we give them the right tools and the the right um, spaces. Mm, beautiful. And if we adults care as well, because like what really shocked me when you were talking at the beginning is how that the organization, the university you, you were going to go to, were not interested in you and how you were and your well-being and your brother's but they, they wanted the money and that I found that completely like so shocking and the ironic part is that it, Georgetown and UPenn are both prestigious university University of Pennsylvania is an Ivy League school they have so much money I mean they're the one of the richest schools not only in the country but the world and yet they were not willing to waive a thousand dollars to allow me to they accepted me thinking that you would think if they accept you they want you um but the university that I'm hoping to attend soon, while older, has way less money, and yet they are willing to find a way to make it work. They're finding a way to make it compromise. They waive the uh, deposit and trying to help me find the right kind of work opportunities to waive my tuition and fees. So I think, I mean, it, it's a culture difference. Um, UPenn attracts very wealthy people and so when you're the exception to that they don't really need you um you know a lot, for the bottom it's money and it's values right it's all like your values and and when your values be become really lived and breathed they become virtues and so you know and to me that just points out to what I I believe is really important is like in organizations loads of schools here in the UK organizations have values on their laminated on the wall but but when it comes to you know like is uh what I often use in my own life as a what happens when the rubber hits the road how do you show up right do you do you show up and live, breathe your values or do you actually show your true colors? <laughs> yeah, I think that's something that I, I really strive to. That's, I'm glad you brought that up because that's a big core value of mine is authenticity because I realized for young people, they don't have a lot of models, whether they're rich or poor, of showing them how to be in society, how to, like if they've been around adults and or parents who they were never themselves, then how do you expect them to show up in the world as, as their own authentic self? And so part of that is showing when you're a little bit of your vulnerability or telling them like, hey, this is transparency. This is how our organization works. Here's our limits. Um, letting these people know these things up front, uh, I think is important. Uh, I, I was just read a book for, for work that, um, and he talked about, as an example, he was working, he was in school and he was doing a summer program where he was going to get paid. And his boss kept saying that, oh, you'll get paid, you'll get paid when it was delayed and kept delaying, kept delaying. He never got paid for a summer's worth of work. And he ended up years, years down the road in that same position 
with a bunch of uh, summer workers. They were uh, all black. And uh, for some reason, the there was a misuse on oversight of signing papers for funding. And so the grant deadline had passed and he had to come up with a decision of, like, okay, do I tell these young people that we don't have the money yet? Or do we, do I just keep doing what my boss did to me, which was saying, oh, we'll get it to you. We'll get it to lying to you knowing that the money's not there and then never getting paid and then abusing these young people's trust, which impacts their, their future ability to work with the, with adults. Um, and so I, I, I find that as a, a challenge many organizations and many adults face when working with young people is, is showing up and, and showing themselves or not just their, their best selves, but their whole selves. Um, and I think we need to do more of that. Yes. And and actually, that links nicely to a post that I put on LinkedIn this morning around, I do think that we talk a lot about the negatives and like the 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 valleys and we talk a lot about the peaks and, you know, like the lovely positives, but we very hardly talk about the mundane and the everything in between. And if you think about things like, you know, I saw something on LinkedIn today that said, the Kardashians have got more followers than uh, than actually uh, uh, Greenpeace or something like that, and and what does that say about what we <laughs> what we value as societies, right? It's a uh, I I think it's so important, particularly for young people. You know, when we talk about being happy, like a, I surveyed two hundred parents or you know guardians or or custodians for um for for the book that we're writing, and they've all said they want their their young people or children to um to live a happy and fulfilled life. And I worry that this idea that you know there's only like you're surfing the wave of life. And that's the aim. But I, because I love metaphors, I would think, well, hang on, but to surf the wave, you also have sometimes to be under the wave. And sometimes you have to be literally under the water, holding your breath. And, but you also have sometimes to just simply wait in the water um, and to, you know, wait because there is no wave or wait because the waves are too dangerous. Um, you know, and everything in between, and and we don't, you know, to me, I think it's a shame that we don't talk more about that, you know, the, the fact that what you were pointing to, which is, you know, some of us will experience um, issues, financial issues, right, for different reasons, like the way I I I choose I chose to go on an unpaid career break and then to give up a really good job. So, you know, my income has drastically changed, right? And so therefore we had to adapt our way of living and 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 the way we and luckily, you know, obviously my husband works and it, you know, we were okay. Um so I think it's also sending the message that these things could happen to any of us, particularly if we don't have a lot of money saved up or, you know, X amount of, of money to to live on if we lose our jobs or our livelihood. Yeah, I think about, again, going back to perceptions, I think, too, as we've created society, especially with young people, I think there's a difference between happiness and pleasure. And I think happiness is 
this combination of joy and peace and and because they elicit two different physiological responses within us i think joy is this like dopamine response where our, our heart's beating fast and we feel euphoric and and pleasure is i think uh, assimilated to that where we have the technology and all these other sensation seeking experiences that are particularly addicting to, to to young people i think with like you said the kardashians or, or other facets where they're they're constantly wanting to be occupied with flooding their their senses with dopamine and whether that be through television or technology or or, or drugs um and i going back to your metaphor i think the the peace part only come you can only really appreciate peace when you haven't had it and that that includes being at the, the low moments in your life and then relating back to your your sense of of this this income and, and changing life i think until you've had that experience you you don't you don't realize you you attribute that that fault to other people i was i was just serendipitously at um this this retirement home and they were having a, a community concert. And I was the only young person that showed up, uh, at, well, relative to the age of everyone else. And, um, but they were like having a great time dancing, singing. And uh, I stayed and I was playing piano in the lobby uh, after left. I had a little group of, of the, the residents sitting around and please started talking and then they, they, they liked me. And then, so then we all decided to have lunch at their cafeteria the following week, which was this past week. And I remember sitting at that conversation and, and somehow they, they, one of them in particular, she starts getting very passionate about um, talking about how people should only have kids. Um, it should be two parent, a mom and a dad. It should be, um, if, if it's out of wedlock, you need to have your tubes tied. Uh, all the, like it, it just kept going. And some of these things were particularly offensive for me because my my parents never got married and uh I think their notion of of people in poverty or people that were single mothers uh had a, a negative view one of them one of them was a psychiatrist before they retired one of them was a, a Korean War veteran and then um worked in a, a factory or a car company for 30 40 years the other one she worked in within various business roles before retiring. And so I had to have that opportunity to provide not only my perspective, but my experience, um, because they didn't know much about me. And I think when you have that one person who, if you you trust or you have that you're building that relationship with, when you're really getting to know them, I think it's changing your your perception of these th those people versus you reading in a book or in the news um talking about my experience you my, my parents my dad being in, in prison for most of my life and and uh, growing up in a, in a trailer with with four siblings and a mom and a stepdad who worked all the time and I, I don't know if I mentioned this the last time but the first time we were um homeless was uh the end of my fifth grade year was about 11 or 12 and the it, the reason why was because the landlord had doubled everyone's rent um which we couldn't afford so we we had to leave and he was arrested and put in prison 
for a, a number of years, but that was years later. It, the damage was already done for us and a number of other residents within the community. We didn't have the connections to lawyers to to fight that because it was it was against the law, but we didn't know that. And we didn't, couldn't afford one or wouldn't even the knowledge of knowing like a what um, a legal clinic or um, one of the nonprofits that, that provide free legal support to low income families. Right. You don't have that knowledge of that income, then you're you're taken advantage of because you don't know the law. You don't know your rights. Um, and that led to our, our first bout of homelessness, even though my, both my parents had been working at the time. 50, 60 hour weeks. So I think your experience, whether whoever you are, I think provides, uh, can help change people's perspectives when they haven't had the interaction or they haven't realized they've had that interaction with those people. Because just because you know people doesn't mean that's what you're talking about. And, I, and it's two things from what you're saying. First of all, it's like, um, I read uh, uh, somewhere that uh, in terms of you know when there's a hurricane or there's you know, natural um, things that happen because of of uh, you know natural events right like a, like a storm or whatever people are more likely to donate if they know or they've visited the area or they know people in that area first of all and so it's also the like debunking the myths right because once you know people like you like for this lady believing that if you're not married then you know and that it needs to be a traditional heterosexual sort of couple to to have children that's very you know to me that's very um what's the word like old-fashioned sort of cons conservative sort of views um, and in a way, by talking to you and by having those conversations, you you'll help her change her mind or view things differently. Yeah, I think this goes back to I think segregation in that we we live and work with people who not only share our parts of our identities like our race or our ethnicity or our religion, but we also of our values right and so when you live in a homogenous community or even if you live in a community with diverse values races beliefs etc but you, you, that's never a topic of conversation then you're still not learning like a lot of people say well oh, i have i have gay friends or i have black friends but like are you talking about the challenge that affects him because if not that you're not really having those learning opportunities and I thought it was just, I didn't get mad because I realized you know, they're older. They have had different experiences in life, different values. They're in a, in a nursing home that's quite expensive that they had, that they pay for. Um, I just thought it was ironic. On the one hand, she doesn't realize that she's like offending me. But on the other hand, she's offering us, she's like, hey, look, this is how much I have to spend a month just in this cafeteria. You come by anytime and you can just give them my name and then you can use my money to buy something. So it's, uh, it's like you're you're saying things that are offensive about my background. You don't realize this, but they're also you just like helping me. Right. And so how do we tie those values for people who who like to help when you get to know them, but then not realizing that they have these these backgrounds that they or they, they always make an exception. Right. And you want to make sure that you don't have this exception policy, that it's changing your your view. No. So. 
uh, what I say, assimilation versus dissonance. Yes, and it's also to me that what you're you're pointing to, which is really important, is being able to go deeper into the the cultural iceberg and looking at our biases and and you know some of the things that is part of the conditioning and and all of those things that we don't always question particularly because we live in such fast-paced lives that we don't take time to question right it's a like I said and, and I admitted previously it, it only took time you know I managed to realize or I realized and now I'm like oh my god this is so bad um but I can change that like you know how I viewed young people in terms of you know oh I'm I'm the teacher and I know best and you know, and I'm an adult I know best right like in terms of the way I even respond to my own children um and I think I think it's admitting that, for, so first of all, what I think is really important, and perhaps I say that because I'm one of those people who were ignorant like this lady before in my own way. I do think that we all, we can change. So change can happen. So it's also not holding it against people like you were saying and just giving people an opportunity like we're having, right? So I really truly believe that dialogue and imperfectly perfect conversations are the way to help us change our minds. But we have to be willing to not hold it against people and turn them into they are bad people. I had that, this conversation with um the boys my two teenagers when we were doing the washing washing up yesterday and they were really not happy with me but I was like well I'll share you what I think um so we were talking I can't remember what my son used but who he was referring to but he said he is um and then he was I don't know what adjective he used but I was sort of saying he's oh he's evil this man is evil and I just said can I just challenge you a minute and he's like why and I went because I don't think anybody's evil naturally like I do think that people do evil deeds you know all that their behavior sometimes you look at it and it looks like it's horrendous and you know and it's not a, yes clearly but I don't think innately any any of us like if you look at the baby when they're born they're not you're not born evil or, or, or good right you just are um, and so saying what would happen if we started shifting our language and started talking about what someone does versus who they are and their identity because I think what happens is once you label people is very difficult it becomes your identity right so how do you shift out of that identity if this is who you are um and I think it also makes us connect more and sort of like be you know connect to that common humanity um as opposed to the person because I think the person is the is is what makes you is the labels that makes you behave in a certain way but we're all human beings and we all have a beating heart and so we should connect to that I don't know does that make sense to you because the boys were like oh I don't know how we feel about that <laughs> so we had a really long conversation yeah you know this brings me back to this it's this idea of, of I think exposure and, and perspective because 
I would love to see if there hasn't been, I haven't done any deep research brief over this, but of being exposed to someone building trust, building a relationship with them before you actually get to know certain aspects of them that perhaps maybe you disagree with. And then you learn after forming a relationship with these things about this person that, that might've caused some uh, conflict cognitively or in terms of values or beliefs, how does that affect you versus if you just heard their beliefs right off the bat before knowing anything else about them. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, I was coming back from the conference and I was waiting under this train and these ladies who um, they had a little bit too much wine um, waved me over and asked me a bunch of questions and they actually knew my, they were teachers and they they were visiting the, the town for a day and they were really drunk and uh, they actually knew the organization I worked for and, and uh, you were from the same area. So we go with, they're like, they invited me to work with, sit with them on the train. And I sat with one woman who she uh, worked at a, one of the local schools and she wasn't a teacher, but the teachers all said that she was basically the principal behind the scenes. Um, she was running the shots. And we were having this conversation about the a local school board meeting where a, a the chair of the school board had allowed for a member of the community who came in and accused the three teachers that had put up like it was it was gay it was gay pride month or it was pride month but they put up flat rainbow flags and, and stickers in their classrooms and they saw that so they went in accusing three or four of these teachers as pedophiles um, which are sexual predators and and you you can't do that in education without proof because that's a that's a death sentence even if you're never convicted right it's hard for TV. so anyways I I I knew this per the chair I had I went to the gym with this person now we never we really talked about his work but I thought he was a decent guy um, and I was quite appalled to hear that that he would do something like this. And so, you know, while they hated him, I had a much more nuanced perspective of like how to how to come to terms with this because there was this version of him that I thought I knew, but there's other parts of him and how he responded in this situation that conflicted. And I think this happens all the time is <clears throat> we, if we are exposed to someone, the things we don't like about them, we dehumanize them quickly, very quickly. But I'll give you an example. Uh, <clears throat> Hitler. Everybody agrees that Hitler was horrible. Uh, well, not everybody, but I think a majority of the world now agrees. And uh, Hitler's development to this you know, wasn't overnight, right? I mean, he was grew up in a context where where anti-Semitism was, was a thing. Then Germany's economy was collapsed and that allowed for his rise a lot of factors like because I, I think hate is like a disease i think it's easy spread once certain conditions arrive so you can catch hate um fear like if it's all about fear fear yeah. more fear right hate i think hate is a reaction to fear and because fear is paralyzing you can't do anything with fear but hate is like the older brother like it gives you energy to do something but anyways um no one very few people no, at least from the history convening, there's there's mixed accounts. But uh, when Hitler, his mom was sick when he was younger, she had cancer. There was a doctor in the town 
who would come and visit her and would either give discounted medicine or just treat her for free um, to ease her symptoms, her pain. And Hill was a mama's boy. So he, uh, at the funeral, he went up and thanked the doctor and he really appreciated this. Okay. So, you know, 15, 20 years later, I can't remember the exact timeline, Hitler gets a request when he's deporting all these Jews um, or putting them in these camps. Uh, he gets a request, a special request from the Gestapo to um, leave. And it was from the doctor who was Jewish. And so Hitler, because of he was like, oh, this this man is an exception to the Jewish problem. So. Not only does he allow Hitler to having I mean, this doctor to have special benefits, but the doctor was allowed to main to stay in his home with protection from the Gestapo, and because of that protection, the doctor would use that protection to allow other Jews uh, refuge in his home, um, and then allowed him to leave the country. So that exposure that he had at the young per point was he didn't change his worldview of Jews, but he accommodated by saying, "Here's this exception." Right. So how many exceptions do you need to have before your schema of a certain population that other changes? That's it. Wow. So powerful. And so two two things that I have, you know, two more questions I have for you. So we talked about putting youth at the center of everything we do and, you know, giving them a voice. And I care, I, as you know, I care deeply about that. It's not my own, not just my own, but every single child and young person. This is why, you know, Joe and Caroline and I are creating this um, learning hub in Bristol. Um, and this is why I do the podcast, etc. The thing is, it's very easy to make it tokenistic. Mm -hmm. to, to just go, hey, you know, we're working with young people. But then when young people, like yesterday, my my two teenagers gave me feedback on, on what they thought, what I was saying. And are you willing to listen or do you just shut them down because you just sort of think, right, no, I disagree with you and I, and I know best. You know, like they both put forward such great um, arguments. I was like, wow. Yeah, let me think more about that and maybe we can have another conversation, right? So what is your experience? How do we make sure that the putting the youth at the center is not tokenistic or is not a another um, way for the ego to come through the back door and to just go, hey, look how great I am because I've got all these youth I'm supporting, etc. Yeah, well, have you heard of uh, Hearts Youth Participation Ladder? No, I don't think I have. Okay, so Roger Hart, he had developed this um, model that I think has been revised many times since his own that I think there are so many different versions, but you, if you do a Google search, basically it's this rung of how involved youth can be within a, a youth adult-led making decisions. Um, partnership. And at the first three rungs, it's like tokenization, marginalization, being manipulated. Uh, so you want to avoid the first three rungs. But the the 
the last five rungs are increasing involvements of youth from being having youth input to being youth led entirely with adults as kind of providing support and background right so think about as a theater it's like how much how much of do you want youth to be front and center um, and running the show versus adults and so it's the varying degrees and some people have different preferences so I've been reading the research of youth advisory boards youth councils and and some of them have a date all the way back to 1930s um, and it, not just in the U.S. but in uh, countries all over the world and councils and in, in the beginning were just as a way to address youth problems, right? Like how to give them a useful outlet for instead of doing things that were mischievous in society. But around the 50s and 60s, that that onus changed to be more of how do we involve them to realize that they have assets to bring and um, that they're going to be the future of our society, that they have to be involved in, in democratic participation early to, to have those values. Um, that's what a lot of them were for. But I've seen that some of the to being youth led, I I really do think before you get into the agenda or the goal of the actual group, which could be addressing certain problems. I don't know. Like it's like going before you go into school and actually starting class. I would just love to see a school system that oh, a couple weeks before they just have a retreat or something where the teachers and students just get to know each other. They don't have there's no agenda. Um, and then start the agenda. So I think first is getting to know them and realizing what they already have to bring into the classroom and then infusing that, like creating opportunities, one where they learn from you and your skill set when you when you realize that it's not that I know more than you just in general, but you have a specific skill set. But they also might have some talents that are better than you. Like I, I work with youth and I'm like, teach me something. Like I'm not good at sports. So if they're good at sports, to teach me how to shoot a basketball or um if they're really good at um something i'm trying to think of that's non like physical exertion um if they well, know my, my son's really good at editing my videos and doing things like that so he's been he's been helping me and showing me how how i can do that so that's another skill okay. right plays like really Technology is a good one. They're really good. That's like their second language. And so I think if you look up another model that is called um, the multiple, it's Gardner's multiple intelligence model, you can see all of the different types of, of talents or, or knowledge that a lot of them might already have to bring into an organization and figuring out, okay, if they don't know it, they might not realize it. Or where do we create those spaces where that that you can learn from them on these different topics. Um, and they they become empowered in that like, oh, I'm young, but I'm allowed to teach someone else or I have a perspective. Uh, it becomes tokenistic in that you say, and this is why a lot of people are weary of youth participation um, for a good reason. You say that you're interested in their perspective and you you listen, but you don't do anything with it. That can, and if it's just one or two people instead of, of, of a little bit of a larger group, where it's they're getting some decision or input on what they want to do, then I think that's, that's different, right? Just because voice does not equal action, right? Input does not equal output. So making sure that there is some output with what they're saying, that it leads to something. Yeah, seeing my, my son often 
says that with like when when adults ask him for his opinion and then and then nothing changes is like what's the point yeah why did, why did I bother telling you if it's not going to have an impact and it's just like it's more frustrating than actually fulfilling or even worse if you ask them and then you're like um no I don't think so like, well, why did you ask if you were just going to shut that down? Like, and for some of them, maybe they I mean, they're young and so they'll have an opinion that maybe needs to be explored. But part of that is them realizing, okay, maybe my opinion is not as nuanced as it could be. And you're adding into what they already said, but it's not, that's not shutting down. It's, it's really asking critical questions. That's really help, helping that ability to think about a response and, and delve deeper. And I guess that links beautifully to the second and last question I had which is like the the notion of adults being facilitators so I view myself much more as a facilitator you know that's why I call myself a recovering teacher and a reformed mum because I I feel I'm you know through the gift of being able to facilitate for a year with home educated young people who were telling me what they wanted to learn and me then sort of like going, all right, okay, let's explore this together and me saying, did that work? What can we change? What can we do differently? Um, it's been phenomenal. Um, so do you feel, is that what you would say, that the adults need to be facilitators or would you call them something else? You know, what, what, what would it be like? Um, you know, do you like the words, other, other words better? Uh, I think enablers um, or advocates are also work because I think part of it is you're advocating to get their opinion or their experience into a room in a, or their voice in a place where it might not be heard as much, but you're not using that voice themselves. I, I, I was, I, I've spoken to 15 or so youth advisory boards in the past three weeks. And, and one that was, he expressed himself as that kind of advocate where if a youth could make it because they had other challenges they they're up to a meeting that they would give their input their their opinion on a, a, a policy or a program whatever they were going to talk about and the the facilitator was in charge of when they could not be there themselves that they would relay those that opinion to the other adults at the adult table if um, they couldn't be present. And so I think part of that is like caring, but I think this is my view. I don't think we can be facilitators all the time in every point because there are points where children need to be told what to do um, in that, you know, a four-year-old doesn't know everything that's best for themselves. And so, you know, they're still learning, but as they grow older, you know, they giving allowed to be more and more input. I mean, there's some things for their safety we cannot let them do, even if they might not understand it in the moment. Um, perspective, you can say that later on. Um, so I think I prefer working with like older teenagers slash young adults. Um, so I don't have that. Like, they know how to feed themselves and how to change themselves largely i'm not dealing with those kinds of things or them wanting to go and uh, i don't know they know how to use a knife um so it really depends on you knowing the young person as much as you can first and then figuring out okay where is it that they can contribute uh based off their skills their talents or strengths 
and then where it, the challenge that they're, they're growing opportunities for them where there might need to be more scaffolding. Um, I think that might help as well. And thinking about peers as a way for them to learn from as well, not just from you. Um, and, and when you're a facilitator, you're facilitating those opportunities for them to learn in multiple contexts, rather than from bringing other people into the circle through like training or through young people that are the same age as them. Um, I think that's uh, your job, but really um, it's not you just telling them what to do, how to do it, when to do it all the time. Yeah, and I and I agree with you, the facilitator. So for me, words like any words have, you know, they're not the Tao, so they're only <laughs> partially enabled to express what really is is there. Um, but for me, facilitator is that is being the space holder. So it's like the this idea that I often share the metaphor that I share with people, which is, you know, I realize now that when I was when I have been privileged to be able to carry my two boys I know that's not the, the pr a privilege that some women or some people have but that has given me a gift of understanding that all I gave them is the sacred space of my womb for nine months you know, like that space for them to grow and develop into this you know baby that was born and really when you keep that metaphor then really our role as human as as adults is only just that right holding the space and enabling them from seedlings to just create in that space and the older they get the bigger this space becomes because obviously just like a grown tree right you need a lot more you know the acorn needs very little really little sort of soil and space and and you know the big oak tree will need a lot more space for its roots and everything else and so I think it's in a way that's a metaphor that works really well for me because you, then you understand that you're not going to let a two-year-old cross a road on their own or run with a, an adult there or, you know, like a, a two-year-old use a really sharp knife, right? Um, and that there is, a, there's also, I think it describes beautifully the need for the adults in the life of the children, right? The educators in the life of the children. Yeah, because if you think about the older they get, the more they're asking for input on, on the skill development and the more they're on an individual emotional support of whatever's going on in their life. And you become, instead of a, a teacher, you're becoming where you're, you're, you're telling them this is what needs to happen or this is what you need to know versus being um, more like a counselor almost, right? You're not giving them the answer but you're helping them flesh out whatever they're, they're feeling they're going through. And then if ultimately it's their decision eventually that they have to make, you're just helping put it into perspective of understanding how they're feeling or why they might be feeling the way that they do. Uh, I mean, if you ask teens today, especially uh, you say, okay, how do we solve, how do we solve poverty? And then they like, that's the questions that adults have a hard time figuring out. So you ask them to like, Oh, um, I don't know, give them more money. And so I think a facilitator is being intentional about how do you ask the questions and get them involved in it, the things that I think affect them too, right? As it's like getting very nuanced into their opinions where they might give very surface level in the beginning because they've never been asked these questions before. Um, so 
I think of it as when we talk about in the enabling pieces, like you ask them, like, what do you need? What do you want in your life? And then they get this a pattern of, okay, here's what we want to do. Here's how we want to make our change or impact. But here's the resources we need. I think the facilitator's job is to help them get these resources. Whether it be money or space or people. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It's like, I call that being a gardener. You just yeah. take care of the plant. <laughs> based on each plant and their needs, right? <laughs> Amazing, Josh. So to wrap up, um, what is there anything that stood out in this conversation for you or key takeaway or something you want, you know, you're taking away, you want our listeners to take away from this conversation? Um, I think a couple of things. One is I think we've really talked about this idea of perception and how exposure to people that are different that us and that they're the topic of conversation can really change our perspective. So challenging to the people that you know in your life or the people you think you know to really dig deeper into their personal beliefs and their experiences, especially those that on the surface look different from you. Um, I think two is realizing that young people have things to contribute. And I've mentioned through history that they already have contributed, but not been recognized for a very long time. Um, so pushing people to find experiences to allow youth voice and youth action within society for those that work with them or policies that affect them. And then then three, I think how what role do we want to have in these young people's lives and what models can we use to learn from that are already out there um, i think there's a lot of research on positive youth development youth um, adult relationships or youth adult partnerships youth advisory boards councils so there's tools out there um, in getting young people involved in experiences that affect them we just don't know about them because we're not taught them and so um, if you're really interested in personal or professional development in that realm, the, they're out there. And I think I encourage you to at least explore them. Amazing. Thank you so much, Josh. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. You can also reach me via Twitter at FlourishingHE on LinkedIn or you can join our private Facebook group, Flourishing Education. All the links are easily available on anchor.fm. Thank you so much and I hope you are flourishing. Bye for now.